Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Tom Colina of the Plowshares Fund, who talks about the harrowing events recounted in the new book Peril, about the steps taken by a top U.S. general to limit Donald Trump's ability to ignite a politically driven nuclear war. Heather McKee Hurwitz a feminist scholar and visiting researcher at the Cleveland Clinic, who discusses her new book titled, Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality. And Dave Cruz Bustamante, a high school sophomore and organizer with the Community First Coalition in Connecticut, who explains why he believes deploying police officers to schools is not the answer to school safety. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Tensions are growing in Somalia between President Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo and Prime Minister Mohamed Hussein Roble over the control of the East African nation's security forces. The dispute focuses on the unexplained murder of a female agent, Ikran Talil, of the National Intelligence and Security Agency in late June. At first, the government blamed the Islamist insurgency al-Shabaab for killing Talil. But al-Shabaab, an al-Qaeda affiliate, has denied killing the agent. Prime Minister Roble moved quickly to suspend the head of the intelligence agency, Fahad Yassin. President Formaggio reinstated Yassin and appointed a commission to investigate the agent's murder. The agent had apparently been poised to blow the whistle on the controversial deployment of Somali troops, perhaps thousands of them, for training in Eritrea since 2019. There are concerns that some Somali troops have been deployed to the front lines of the civil war in Tigray, Ethiopia. The slain agent's family has called for an investigation and filed a lawsuit with the Armed Forces Attorney General's office implicating Yassin, among others, in Talil's disappearance. Rival military factions clashed in a firefight in front of the intelligence agency headquarters in early September. The president's forces eventually backed down, but the showdown illustrates the long-running dispute with President Farmaggio seeking to extend his term in office that expired in February. United Nations Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed met with Farmaggio and Robla in Mogadishu and urged the two leaders to de-escalate any tensions and avoid action that could lead to violence and further delay elections or undermine its credibility. The Guardian newspaper reports tech giant Google had systematically underpaid its temporary and contract workers around the globe. Moreover, Google, which has a two-tiered workforce, delayed correcting pay rates in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia for two years, as the company attempted to cover up the disparity in wages between temporary workers and full-time Google employees. Laws in the United Kingdom, Europe, and Asia require Google to pay temporary workers the same as full-time staff doing similar work. According to documents obtained by The Guardian, Google's delay was due to concerns about the increased costs to departments that rely heavily on temp workers, potential exposure to legal claims, and fear of negative press attention. A whistleblower filed a complaint with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission 
alleging Google failed to disclose its pay disparity worth $100 million reflected in material misstatements in Google's quarterly financial statements. The disclosure led to members of the Alphabet Workers Union at Google demanding immediate back pay to temp workers, creating a path from temporary to permanent jobs and an end to the tech giant's two-tiered employment system. In a court filing, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency requested clean water protections be restored for Bristol Bay, Alaska, under threat from the proposed Pebble Creek gold mine. The move, if approved by a federal court, would block permits for the mine in favor of preserving the world's largest sockeye salmon run, reversing actions by the Trump administration. In recent years, an effective opposition has blocked the granting of federal permits to open the gold mine, which is owned by a Canadian mining firm. Opponents include indigenous groups, commercial and recreational fishermen, and prominent Republicans like Fox News host Tucker Carlson. It was seen as too risky to develop an open-pit gold mine at the headwaters to the fishery in southwest Alaska, home of sockeye, coho, and pink salmon. The EPA now views Bristol Bay as a unique resource. A year ago, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers ruled the mine would have no measurable effect on fish populations. At the same time, the agency observed the mine would be a likely source of environmental degradation. Commercial fishing in the area currently generates $2 billion a year. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's new book titled Peril, there's a haunting account of how General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and chief military advisor to the president, fearful that Donald Trump was unstable, took steps to limit his ability to launch a military strike or deploy nuclear weapons that could ignite a politically driven war. The book also details Milley's two phone calls, made to reassure Chinese General Li Zucheng of the People's Liberation Army that the U.S. had no intention of launching a strike against China. The first call was placed on October 30, 2020, after Milley reviewed intelligence, suggesting China believed the U.S. was preparing for an attack. The second call was placed after the January 6 pro-Trump insurrection at the Capitol that attempted to overturn the results of the U.S. presidential election. Your reporter spoke with Tom Kalina, director of policy with the Plowshares Fund, who talks about the harrowing events recounted in Woodward and Costa's new book and the urgent need to implement safeguards to prevent future presidents from having the unilateral decision-making power to launch a nuclear holocaust. You know, this, this story starts with a policy that most Americans don't even know about, which is that the president of the United States has sole authority to launch U.S. nuclear weapons, all of them at any time, with no oversight um, from anyone else in the government. When people are asked, do you think this is true, most people say no. They think that the Secretary of Defense has to sign off, or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or Congress, but in fact, it's, it's solely up to the President. All the President has to do is pick up the phone, 
or pick up a communications device in this thing called the nuclear football that presidents carry around or have with them, buy them 24-7, 365, and call into the war room of the Pentagon, uh, give a code identifying themselves, and then give the order to launch. Um, it's that simple. So when you combine that ultimate godlike power with a president who has become unhinged, like President Trump clearly was during and after the Capitol Hill riot, you've got a tremendously dangerous situation. And, and the first person to you know, raise the alarm on this was the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, who two days, I guess this was around January 8th, called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, and she asked him, you know, do you have safeguards to prevent an unstable president from starting nuclear war? And at that time, the account from General Milley was, don't worry, <laughs> we've got this covered. And what we're finding out now as we get more detail from the Bob Woodward and Costa book is we get more of the story, which is that General Milley, the way he pro provided that supposed safeguard was to bring all the members of the war room essentially together and say, if you get a call from the president to start nuclear war, you got to check with me first. I'm in the loop. Make sure you bring me in the loop. And this was, I guess, his effort to be able to reassure Nancy Pelosi that he had safeguards or checks on what President Trump might do. The irony here is that um, General Milley had no such authority. So here you have General Milley inserting himself into the process and saying, this shall not happen unless I approve it. He was completely breaking the rules. And I would argue for all the right reasons, right? He was in an impossible situation. He was breaking the rules because our policy makes no sense. It makes no sense to let an unhinged President Trump decide the fate of the world. But that's the debate we're having right now. Was it moral? Was it right for the general to step in like this? Uh, I think it was. But ultimately, the bigger question is, does this policy need to change? And I think, yes, it definitely does need to change. Tom, the experience of the Trump presidency and the events that occurred after January 6th certainly uh, bring home to the American people that repairing a dangerously broken system regarding the president's sole power to launch a nuclear war needs repairing, needs urgent repairing. Review for our listeners what President Joe Biden can do, what Congress can do right now to start that process. Sure. So, so there's really two aspects to this. One is the president's sole authority, uh, and the other is the sole authority to launch first. So you can take two approaches to that. One is you can say there's no more sole authority for first use. Um, the president has to consult with Congress. Um, and there is a bill in Congress called the Markey Lou bill. President Biden could just declare this. He could declare this tomorrow. Um, he could say that I'm not going to use nuclear weapons first. Um, unless Congress or a subset of Congress um, agrees with that decision. And there would no longer be sole authority for first use. There would now be shared authority for first use between the executive and Congress. The other approach that Biden could take is just to declare no first use, that the United States will never launch nuclear weapons first. That would still allow retaliation, right, because second use is still allowed. But no president would ever be able to launch nuclear weapons unless the United States had already been attacked. And both of those rules provide much more clarity to people like General Milley uh, than our current situation. Remember, poor General Milley, 
he's he's floundering in this situation where President Trump can do whatever he wants, and Milley thinks he's unhinged. And so the general is trying to find roundabout ways, break the system to try to make sure that the president can't do something that's going to end the world. The military can't be the decider on this. It has to be a civilian decision. So what the military needs is rules um, to know whether an order is legal or illegal. Um, but what right, right now what we've left them is this gray area where they have to insert themselves. And, and it's becoming a situation where the military is deciding uh, in this case, you know, not to launch or to try to stop a launch. That is not the military's role. So we need to fix these rules, bring it back into civilian control, and make it very clear to military officer what's legal, what's not legal. That was Tom Kalina, director of policy with the Plowshares Fund and co-author, along with former Defense Secretary William Perry of the book, The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Find related commentary on this topic by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the months after the near collapse of the U.S. financial and banking system in 2008 that triggered the most serious global economic meltdown since the Great Depression, America witnessed an uneasy silence, suggesting either trauma or stunned acquiescence among the general populace. But on September 17, 2011, the near silence was broken when several hundred mostly young activists executed a long-planned peaceful occupation by setting up an encampment near the New York Stock Exchange in Zuccotti Park, a space they renamed Liberty Plaza. Despite mass arrests, the activists continued their occupation. Their focus was on economic inequality in the U.S., not seen since the Gilded Age, in what they described as a broken political system. The Wall Street protests that popularized the slogan, We Are the 99%, inspired support nationwide, with some estimates that nearly a thousand Occupy encampments were organized across the U.S. and around the world. In November, police departments nationwide colluded to take down the Occupy camps. But over the next decade, the spirit and passion of Occupy lived on, in the continuing fight for social justice on multiple fronts. Your reporter spoke with Heather McKee Hurwitz, a feminist scholar and a visiting researcher at the Cleveland Clinic. Here she talks about her new book titled Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality and the lessons learned by progressive organizers over the past 10 years. I celebrate this movement, of course, on its 10-year anniversary, but I celebrate it so much that we should really learn from it and look back with um, a real studied lens to see what happened here and what um, was were some of the, the falterings of the movement. And while there, the 99% message was so catching. I mean, it is one of the messages that has stayed with us in this country. It it has been a rallying cry even for the Bernie Sanders campaigns that have come after the Occupy movement. And that idea of the 99% versus the 1% has brought a conversation about economic inequality to the country that we didn't have before the Occupy movement. 
So I have to celebrate those parts of the movement as being very important and opening. At the same time, when I talked with people, the women, queer people, um, longtime racial justice activists who were excited for this viral new movement, they shared with me that they really questioned are we the 99%? Am I part of that 99% that this movement is envisioning as the group coming together? How can I be a part of that when this movement doesn't prioritize an analysis about racism, when it doesn't highlight the specific challenges that women are enduring during the Great Recession? How can this just be an economic message when my activism, I'm speaking as these people I interviewed, my activism has centered around issues of sexuality and the oppressions that I feel in my particular socioeconomic position are shaped by my sexual orientation as well. Many of the activists I spoke with felt that their particular concerns were not only on an economic level, but these other race, class, gender, disability levels were not central enough to the main movement. And that that idea of the 99% actually was exclusive. Do you think there were lessons learned here that have been applied since the fall of Occupy in November of uh, 2011? I think that we saw the lessons from Occupy come out a little bit later in early 2013 in the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. So one of the key lessons that we should learn from Occupy is that a movement about addressing one form of inequality, in the Occupy's case, economic inequality, is limiting. and we need an analysis that really takes in the complexity of inequality in our country. This would be more of an intersectional message. This is a term that professor and lawyer Kimberly Crenshaw created in the late 1980s to describe the particular experiences of black women workers at that time who were encountering discrimination on the job, but not just due to their racial identity and not only due to their gender identity, but a particular intersection between those two. The Occupy movement was so focused, and many of the activists in it, on that economic place. Even some of the feminists I talked to said, you know, it's like women of color feminism never even happened. They're telling us we have to deal with the economics and capitalism first and everything else can come later. That is not the right way to go forward here. And we're erasing a whole history of racial justice and feminist activism in the process. I think we saw a really different movement emerge with Black Lives Matter that was about the economic, racial, gendered, and sexual dimensions and more of black persons' experiences. It was much
much more an intersectional movement. And that's a really key takeaway from the Occupy movement, that progressive movements going forward need to have that intersectional analysis for people to really feel included. That was Heather McKee Hurwitz, a feminist scholar and author of the book titled Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality. Find more perspectives on the legacy and lessons learned from Occupy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. One of the most controversial aspects of police-community relations in the U.S. is the presence of police officers in schools, known as School Resource Officers, or SROs. Since the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, more than 20 school districts across the country have eliminated SROs, according to the publication Education Week. Opponents of SROs call them part of the school-to-prison pipeline, affecting mostly black and brown students. But school boards in other districts, including Chicago and Los Angeles, after much debate, have decided not to remove police officers from their schools. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dave Cruz Bustamante, a sophomore at Wilbercross High School in New Haven, Connecticut. He was one of the speakers at a statewide kickoff event to pressure the state legislature to pass a measure to fund support personnel in schools not police. Here he explains why he believes deploying police officers to schools is not the answer to concerns about school safety. So the exact demands of the Care Not Cops campaign is to kind of push forward a bill that would replace SROs, which are school resource officers, with school resource counselors. They also want to redefine SROs to include security officers and other non-police actors that still contribute to the criminalization of black and brown youth. They want accountability and transparency legislation for police-led interactions in schools, and really also focusing on decriminalizing truancy and chronic absenteeism. The organizing in Connecticut is part of a national movement, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, you know, I think especially since the uprising last year in the summer, it's been a continuous movement. So, you know, you, you see a lot of different places like Denver pushing to get rid of SROs, removing them from schools and investing in, instead of investing in police and in schools, investing that money into more social workers, counselors, psychiatrists, nurses. And I, I believe Denver is starting the process of divesting and like reinvesting in social services. But, you know, it is a growing movement. There are a lot of places and people that are pushing forward these goals, really, to kind of pushing forward care instead of punishment. And, you know, uh, when I talk to a lot of peers and students, the consensus is also like, this is kind of kind of dumb. Like, you know, why do we have to walk through metal detectors every single day and have police officers in our school? You know, like, what's going on? Like, So there is a consensus that, you know, this isn't right and it needs to be changed. There's been a big jump in violence in cities around the country, including New Haven. I don't know if any of it is related to schools, 
And it sounds like the overall increase in violence doesn't change your mind about police in schools. Nope. And I'll tell you why. So you see this increase in homicides in New Haven, literally in my neighborhood, four shootings, two of them homicides, two shootings. But you see this increase in homicides, but people fail to realize that the NHPD, the New Haven Police Department, has not been defunded. And on top of that, New Haven is occupied by two other police departments, the Yale Police Department and the Hamden Police Department, and has contracts with surrounding towns such as West Haven to also come in, into New Haven to make arrests and patrol. Um, and you still don't see a reduction in crime. A lot of these problems that come up, these are interpersonal disputes that go on. They're often retaliatory and they just cannot be solved by police officers who arrive after the scene. If you start thinking a little bit, a lot of these issues come from poverty within our neighborhoods. There is a lot, a lot, and a lot of inequality in New Haven and poverty in our neighborhoods, especially neighborhoods of color. And that manifests in different ways. That's crime, even see higher asthma rates, which is you know, linked to environmental racism. So. My point is, you know, a lot of these issues are not going to be solved by police officers, but instead long-term investment in our neighborhoods and social services as alternatives to police officers. Dave Cruz Bustamante, I know some parents in different cities who are strongly in favor of having police in schools because they feel like they relate well to the students and they make the schools safer. Do the parents of the young people working here to get rid of SROs in Connecticut support your efforts? Some do and some don't. Personally, my parents don't. Um, but that's also why I said Americans are brainwashed into thinking that over-policing and criminalizing Black and Brown youth is seen as safety. Even our own communities, we fear the people in our own communities at times too. So obviously police would seem like a good solution. But like I said, that hasn't worked. And it's been an experiment that governments and New Haven has tried over and over again with new partnerships and partnerships with federal and state agencies. But it definitely varies. And that's the thing about youth as well, young people, notorious for, you know, pushing new ideas, because those values of, you know, punishment, capitalism, money and property over lives has not really been fully instilled yet into the minds of young people. Once that already sets in, it's pretty hard to change your mind that black and brown youth shouldn't be criminalized 99% of the time. So keep your mind open and, you know, try to, you know, unlearn your fear and be open to new possibilities because a new world is possible where all of us live with peace, love and compassion for each other and social duty to each other and responsibility to each other. So keep an open mind and keep pushing and try to challenge your own notions of what safety really is and take a look at your own neighborhoods if you're privileged and wealthy, because that's the perfect example of what we want. That was Dave Cruz Bustamante, a high school sophomore and organizer with the Community First Coalition in Connecticut. Learn more about groups opposed to deploying police officers in schools by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.